So settle back and enjoy another afternoon of snooker. What a shot. This is so special. Brilliant. Oh, fantastic. And that'll put a little spring and a step. He's done it. This is Snooker Club. This is Snooker Club, the World Snooker Tour official podcast. Hello and welcome to Snooker Club. I'm Mark Watson. And I'm Stephen Hendry. We are fresh from last week's dramatic live episode at <laughs> Ali Pali. And this week we've got, as a special guest, the World Grand Prix defending champion, Mark Allen. We'll be looking ahead to the tournament, the first in the player series, which is already underway in Leicester, and looking back on Ronnie O'Sullivan's amazing victory at the Masters. Plenty of you have sent in questions for Mark Allen, so we'll be sifting through those, as well as our normal, very popular correspondence section, and the pistol will take on the quiz. So welcome to episode nine of Snooker Club. So Stephen, well, first of all, we've done a live show and you've had a birthday. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, hope, thanks to everyone that came to the live podcast, by the way, real fun playing uh, with, with uh, Zhang and Stephen Fry. Not a doubles match anyone would have expected to see, I think. Yeah, and, and, I, and I was quite happy that my number one fan um, popped up as well, which was very, very nice of her in the second row to like, you know, you know add a bit of something to the conversation. It's fair to say the live event was slightly monopolised by your biggest fan <laughs> in the world, yeah. She's basically cheering every line that you said, and she asked you quite a number of questions before we got to the Q&A bit, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, um, yeah, it was very surreal. It was nice to, um, it was obviously different to what we're doing here, zoom in um, or whatever you call it, and and to be actually interactive um, with it with it with the crowd. It was great fun. It was really fun. It was, yeah. Thanks to everyone that uh, came. Great to get around the snooker table as well. I, I know you still have some concerns about my bridge. Yeah, um, we need definitely needs work. That definitely needs work. It does need work. But I, um, well, at one point I went red and then colour, and it was. Uh, Real treat for the fans, I think. It was probably the best exhibition of snooker seen at Alexandra Palace this week, in fact. <laughs> yeah, it was only down from downhill from there for the rest of the week, wasn't it? Two maximums. Ronnie Sullivan, amazing final, but no, the highlight was definitely, I think, some of your pots with that bridge. I think I'll have nightmares that I wake up and go and play a match and I've got your bridge. Well, all I can <laughs> say is, Stephen, my uh, my record is that's one match played and one won this season, and that is probably where I'll leave it. So I've got 100% record. So... You know, I don't want to say you should be inspired by me, but it might be just worth looking back at the footage a thing or two. I think Jang Ando was shell-shocked. Yeah, he never recovered from that. Yeah, he lost frustration to Sean. You could tell he was just, yeah. He, I think he, in his he, press conference after it, he sort of mentioned that, yeah, the preparation wasn't right. No, <laughs> he was mentally shot to pieces, yeah. You can't... <laughs> You can't expect to take me on on the table and then come straight into a match like Murphy the next day. We just gave that game to Murphy on a plate. Speaking of Sean, I know you were interested to see him in the commentary box the, the evening before his semi, which, let's face it, was a long one. I was there and uh, it was it went on, didn't it, Selby v Allen, as you might have predicted. Yeah, I, I definitely dodged a bullet not working on that one. That said, it did mean I had the experience of seeing a 147. Uh, for the, it's the first time I've ever witnessed it. It's quite amazing, the atmosphere that comes over the arena. Everyone's concentrating on, could he win the frame, first of all? Then it becomes, he's on his way to a century. And then you start start to... Obviously, some people have got the commentary in their headphones. Some people didn't have... I was there with my with my lad, and so we didn't have headphones on. I was sort of just very quietly talking him through what was happening. And then there's a moment you realise it's on, and uh, everything went silent. 
Yeah, I think I think that's the thing with it with it, with the headphones now to hear the commentary because generally if the ball's in a good position, it could be as early as they're on sixteen. They put two reds, two blacks, and we'll say, yeah. well, the ball's in a great position. So obviously, large percentage of the crowd will know what's going on straight away, and then a buzz will will start around the audience quite quickly. Yeah. I felt really slow for not realising because I was just focused on on him building the break. And then you glance at the scoreboard and you think, hang on, they have all been blacks. And the, mm. also, I was up in the ward snooker. Were you in the prawn sandwich section? I, I, I don't want like phrases like the prawn sandwich brigade or <laughs> massively important VIP, but it was that sort of situation, yeah. And it was obviously there's people in there that are hardly even concentrating and there's people eating mm. and all, all sorts of stuff. And then even those people, it was like a spell was cast over. It's the, it's the most exciting thing that happens in, in snooker. I know darts have got a nine dart golf's got the hole in one in snooker it's like 10 minutes of like sheer drama um and for a snooker player it's like i mean it's the biggest buzz you can have legally on a snooker table um yeah. it's just it's just it's just incredible the feeling there were players in past generations that had other buzzes actually, but uh, <laughs> yeah better off just making them one four seven also i i lived a bit of it through the eyes of dennis taylor because he was up there in the box right and uh I've never met him before, so I, I didn't even introduce myself. But it was amazing seeing him properly, like hitting every ball. He was muttering to himself, "Don't overrun it." He's suffering as much as Mark Allen himself. I know it's it's incredible, and and, and I think the the, the two one four sevens as well. It couldn't be too, yeah. couldn't be more different. Dings was yeah. like immaculate. I mean, the cue yeah. ball was pretty much in position the whole way through. Um, whereas Mark Allen had to play five or six shots, which were just incredible to keep it going. Yeah, including the the final black it didn't look very nice actually it, in the. The position he got off the pink, there was a little bit of a gasp. Taylor was muttering, "Don't go too far, don't go too far," and I could hardly watch him. Take it. But he didn't really, he didn't really flint and play there. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, it's a horrible feel, feeling because um, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have made eleven, but I'm not kidding you. Every single time on the final black, you're thinking, "Well, don't miss the final black." Before yeah, you get down, you think you don't want to be that person like Ken Doherty, uh, yeah. years and years ago, who misses the very final black for a one four seven. I think um, Tep Chaya did it as in I'm UK good. as well. You can't stop yourself thinking that. Oh my God! Don't just don't don't miss the final black. Yeah, we can all remember quite a lot of one four sevens, but we've also all got a mental category of people that blew the one four seven. The furthest I got to miss, I missed a missed a pint of pink for a one four seven again at Wembley, like like Ken um, when the sports car was on offer. I think it was against oh, Jimmy White. The God. final pink was bad was bad enough, I tell you. <laughs> the, you just see someone just uh, rev up the engine and drive the car slowly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. So because you have to walk the way you walk into the venue, it's in the venue. Walk past it every oh, day, you, you and so yeah. So I had to walk out and see it and like look and thought, oh, devastation. It is remarkable to have two one four sevens in a single tournament. I think they've only ever been three in the history of the Masters. Incredible. And then we had two this week. Unbelievable. With it in the Triple Crown, they've got this bonus now, 147 grand, if you do two maximums in three of the of the Triple Crown events. Yeah. So which players now, I mean, it'd be interesting to see Mark Allen and Ding at the World Championship, if they have a chance. That's a big carrot being dangled. Yeah. Was there a prize like that just for getting one at the Crucible? Twice I did it, yes. So you got 147,000 plus 20 grand high break. So you got 167,000 oh, pounds. For about 10 minutes work which was a good rate 167 grand resting on that one black ball is quite a thought in it and and um Jusu as well he got one in uk quality before before the tv round i think so yeah again three players that could have 147 grand payday at the crucible exactly it'd be a, be a great story 
we'll see Alan lose the match by just going for a maximum yeah. every frame. He won't play any tactical shots at all. <laughs> but you kind of think that every tournament there's going to be one. There's certainly lots of chances to, yeah. to, to do it now, now, nowadays. Um, but it's still a, a hugely difficult thing to do. Oh, yeah. I mean, you look at it like, it's, what is it, the 50th year of the Masters, and that's five in 50 years. I, I said it to my son, in fact, because he was sort of, um, he was really into it, but I was... He also was eating a cheesecake, <laughs> and uh, I was like, as it as the break goal went on, I was like, just leave that for a second. I promise you, this this is if this is happened, this is tournaments are going since the seventies, and yeah. this has hardly ever happened. So you can you can come back to the pudding, but uh, focus on the rest of this break. And he was he he loved it. The atmosphere of it is yeah. There's not many sporting things where everyone in the everyone in the arena basically want even yeah. Selby like you know he's already lost the frame. So the the sense of I can't really think of anything else where the whole crowd is behind one. He'll be expecting like one four sevens every time he goes yeah. to a snooker match now. His first time is a one four seven. He'll also be expecting every match to go on to about one in the morning. Yeah, and get cheesecake sure. every match, every tournament as well. Cheesecake one four seven and about seven hours later. If, yeah. he, if, if he turns up at some other you know tournament like uh, throw the Welsh Open, I don't think there's any hospitality. We would cheesecake at the Welsh It'd be Open. Fortunate to get that again, yeah. He's also not every match will will be quite as long as that or <laughs> or as dramatic as that. To be fair, and the tickets to next year, the, the tickets that were available yeah. went in six minutes. Yeah, they've phenomenal. Sold sixty five percent of all of the tickets went in two days, which like I imagine planning that far ahead. <laughs> But fair play to everyone, and it is well worth going to Ali Palace. It's turned out to be the tournament to go to. Okay, the World Championship stands alone as for what it is, the sort of pinnacle of snooker as a player, the crucible, 17 days of, you know, you need everything, stamina, it tests everything. But in terms of, like, prestige and occasion and TV, everything that goes with it, I think the Masters has become the tournament in snooker. Yeah, and the matches are a good length, I suppose, as well. It's it's Mm. kind of, there's so much... The drama is really concentrated. And yeah, just the standard is so high. What needs sorting out Ali Pali, though, is the wasps. I mean, yeah. what is what is going on with these? I mean, I'm absolutely Amazing. scared of wasps. Um, I, I just hate I've never been stung in my life, but I'd, the people at my golf club take the mickey at me because I run all over the place, like, you know, screaming, <laughs> like, oh, get, get. But Judd Trump made a, made a 90 break or something with one stuck to the back of his waistcoat. I was commentating. I could see it, and I was like, I was having nightmares. It must have been hard for you to to watch that at all. It was, it was horrific. It was horrific. This huge, huge thing, and and the referee obviously couldn't say anything because it doesn't want to disturb him. He's in the middle of a match. He's on a break. But I'm thinking, I mean, this this could sting him at any 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 time. And I mean, they got they got it off at the end, and and they they killed it, which um which again people don't like apparently. Um, because I, re- I remember one time there was a, a tour, an ITV tournament. I was commentating, and there was a wasp, and I actually said in commentary, "Kill it." Like that, because I hate them. And apparently there was loads of complaints. I bet there were, I bet there were. I mean, what good do wasps do in the world? I, I don't, I, well, that's a bigger question than this snooker podcast. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's for another day, I suppose. Another day, another <laughs> yeah. podcast. So that's something for the correspondence section. It's a little bit different from my usual questions, but we, yeah. we'd love to hear from you. People I mean, used to say to me with the matches, I'm going to bring a jar with a, one wasp in it when I'm playing you. And it's just, you just open the lid. And that's... Steve Davis one chase, once chased me, actually. This is a true story. We were in a studio in, in York, and there was one flying around. And they caught it, and they put it in a, put the, the, the bit of card underneath the glass. They got it, and Steve Davis chased me around the, the, the studio with it. Amazing stuff. That was the one thing that could disturb your composure. That was your one Achilles yeah. heel on, at the table. If Jimmy White had brought a wasp to even one of those finals, well, we'll never know. <laughs> Hi, my name's Ali Carter. And when I'm flying my aeroplane, I change the frequency to the World Snooker Tour official podcast.
Welcome back to Snooker Club. It's time now to discuss the Masters final, which, of course, Ronnie O'Sullivan won 10-7 against Ali Carter. If you missed any of it, here's Connor from the WST team to fill you in. We're at Alexandra Palace in London for the Mr Q at Masters final. Ali Carter is taking on Ronnie O'Sullivan at one o'clock. Ali is looking to avenge his last two final losses to Ronnie, whilst O'Sullivan is looking to collect his record-extending eighth Masters victory. Well, I think there could be a little bit of niggle today with these two, but I think Ronnie O'Sullivan would just take it. Yeah, Ronnie O'Sullivan, definitely. Ronnie, easily. Ronnie, comfortably. Ronnie, 10-7. I think it's going to be Ronnie, but yeah. I think it's going to be Ronnie 8-0 in the first session, and... Carter wins 10 <laughs> We are now at the first interval. It is split evenly at two frames each with two centuries to show for it. The captain, Ellie Carter, seems to be coming out with a good game plan. Ronnie's looking a little bit riled up or maybe he just doesn't care. It's good to see Ali Carter playing so well. Favourite moments so far in the first four frames? The 1-3-2 by Ronnie. Uh, attempted double by Ronnie. Yeah, Ronnie's 1-3-2. Here is sports broadcaster Rob Walker's analysis after eight frames with Ali Carter 4-3 up. I think this is this frame in particular is massive. Carter had a two-frame advantage and Ronnie's taken the penultimate of the session. Carter so far is playing fantastic snooker. This is a huge moment in his life because we're looking at someone who has lost two world championship finals to Ronnie O'Sullivan. Carter has had to play second fiddle to Ronnie in the two biggest individual matches that there are. He finished second in a brilliant final uh, to Stuart Bingham four years ago. He will believe this is his chance and the fact that he's produced eight centuries so far, six coming into this final and two already in the show as we talk with him leading 4-3, he's brought his A-game and he knows he'll need his A-game to beat Ronnie. If he, if he holds on to a two-frame advantage tonight, this is his best ever chance of by far the biggest title of his career. Because I know he's won the German Masters twice, but this is a different level. 1997 world champion Ken Doherty is here commentating on the events of the day and speaks with us now. The Masters is just incredible. The atmosphere is electric. Anytime, you know, for when you come here, it's just always just full to capacity. Just a brilliant, brilliant venue. You know, the home of the Masters. Both of them are playing really well, made a century each. I think it's really sort of gearing up for a wonderful, wonderful final. And uh, I think it could go close, you know. you got to go for Ronnie because he's got a better head-to-head. -head. But I love the way Ali's playing. He's playing full of confidence. He's going, he's scoring, and it's a, it's a fantastic... Uh, it's going to be a fantastic finale. 2015 world champion Stuart Bingham beat Ali Carter 10-8 at the 2020 Masters final. I still think Ronnie's got a chance. I, I thought Ronnie could win this sort of 10-4, 10-5. Um, but he, he obviously was, he didn't look like he was up for the match this afternoon but I'm sure if he changes his attitude and, and get involved in this game that he can still turn it around but the way Ali's playing and the way he's played all the way through the tournament he's um, he's got to be slight favourite Ronnie O'Sullivan has pulled it back to 6-6 and Ali Carter has given up a 6-3 lead I'm here with Ed and Ellen what did you guys enjoy about those last four frames? Oh it was awesome I mean Ronnie's getting back into the flow he's making the comeback let's go Ronnie I'm just always obsessed with Ronnie O'Sullivan and so just to see him sort of come back playing a little bit safer seems like he's just yeah. getting he's just a bit cleaner on everything I'm here with Ben and Tom who's going to win? yeah but I'm Rocket Rocket till I die I've got 50 notes on Rocket tonight so I'm hoping he comes in Ronnie O'Sullivan recovered from 6-3 down to beat Ali Carter 10-7 and claim a record extending 8th Masters title here at Alexandra Palace Two hundred and fifty thousand pounds. The four hundred and thirty. 
Speaking of finals, obviously Ronnie put mm. Carter away in the end after a very strong start. There was a fair bit of talk from Ronnie about getting in his head and trying to make him lose his bottle and all this sort of thing. What do you what do you make of that? Yeah, I, I was I was in comms at the end and basically as soon as the last ball was potted, I was in my car going home because I knew I'm going to Leicester today and I knew I had the podcast to record and everything. So I wanted to get out there quickly. But I seen his interview with Rob on social media this morning and it was quite it wasn't the best interview, let's put it that way. In yeah. terms of towards Ali Carter, he was a bit like, you know, it's almost like, the, and the way he was playing all week is bordering on, you know, um, taking the mick out of your opponent, the way he's playing, the balls yeah. he's going for. And he's almost like, well, I'm just going to do what I want. See, if yeah. you can't handle it, then fair enough. I'm just going to play this game. But Carter stood up to him in the afternoon. He did. Um, he well. played yeah. with, with, and, and then at night, Ronnie had to change his game because he, that wasn't going to work. Keep playing like that. Yeah, he said after the Hawkins game that he oh, dragged him down to my level. He basically made mm. dismissive comments about almost every match he played. But that's yeah. it's funny. You said before, after you get beaten, you're not in the mood for interview and you just give one word answers. But Ronnie's the only one that does that when he when he has one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. The uh, thing is, it's thing is, it's seven seven. Ali Carter potted a red and didn't get on the pink into the middle. Um, if he got on that pink, he'd have gone eight seven up instead of going eight seven behind. Um, okay, yeah. Ronnie went eight yeah. seven up. Ali, Ali kind of weakened. Then he did. He he he, he kind of fell yeah. away completely. But if Ali had gone eight seven, it would could. I mean, they were literally millimeters away from Ali. Could have been eight seven up, and it might have yeah. been different. Uh, Ali Carter scored very heavily all week. Nine centuries in the tournament, which is the most anyone's made um, in a single Masters tournament. What, what do you think about where he's at now? Best I've seen him play. Very impressive. Has it made you think about him as a as a potential sort of world champion or and he's, he's, yeah, absolutely he's got to be a contender. But the thing the thing with it playing playing against Ronnie, especially in the long matches, you've got to be on it the whole time. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like Ronnie goes eight seven up. You've got to still be there mentally to keep up with him. Um, and, and Ali didn't. He, he he sort of fell away quite quickly. Yeah. Ronnie's kind of like he wears you down and wears you down and wears you down. Um, yeah. It's very difficult, and at the crucibles, it's, it's even harder. It's even longer matches. I, I was going to say, trying to stay with him over like 33 frames or something is it's mm. a hell of an ask, isn't it? Um, yeah. Uh, obviously, we've we've now all seen Ronnie's quotes from his press conference and various things he said um, about, well, about Ali Carter specifically. Um, it, it's a bit of a strange one, this Stephen. Obviously, it's, it's, a, it's between the two of them, but um, it, it's for the, one thing you can say is it's going to be a pretty weird atmosphere next time they they meet. You'd think. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it is between the two of them, and obviously there, there, there is bad blood there. There's no doubt about it, and it's gone, it's gone back quite, quite a long way. Um, yeah. Obviously, known each other a long time. It, you, you think is it? How is it going to impact, impact on them for the rest of the season? As far, as far as the snooker's concerned, I don't think it'll affect Ronnie at all. I think he just this, these sort of things just, just sort of, you know, brush off Ronnie. But I think Carter, I think, yeah. going to be careful that this sort of thing doesn't impact, especially playing straight away this, this week in the Grand Prix. Um, that it doesn't affect yeah. his game. It's a very tight turnaround, isn't it? Like, you know, Ronnie literally getting up the next morning after lifting the trophy and he's, and he's back out there to Leicester. It, it, it must be... I mean, Ronnie keeps talking about how he wants to play less and he needs to sort of rest up a bit. And um, mm. do you think that press conferences like this suggest that he's like not quite... You know, that he's, he's mentally getting tired of it? Or you, I, you wonder where it comes from a bit? I, th- I think um, there's certainly a huge 
people don't realise that winning these like, these big events, it might not look it to Ronnie the way the way he, sometimes he, he, he treats it so easily and and, he, and he, the way the way he acts. But I mean, it does take a lot out of you mentally. But both players would have been mentally exhausted after that after that week, and and sometimes you know you, you sometimes you get asked questions in the press conference straight after, and you're still. I mean, I've done it myself. You, you basically go in a press conference. You're still raging after losing, and you get asked a question, and you and you react differently than you might have done if it, if you'd waited half an hour to do the press conference. Yeah. So you know, obviously things were still pretty raw for both players. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, as I say, they've got to start again this week. I mean, it'd be obviously the next time if they ever play each other, it's going to be it's going to be spicy. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, the, <laughs> the snooker community will be holding its breath if they meet in the draw anytime soon. As for Leicester, we'll just have to hope there aren't too many bins around because that that upset Ronnie apparently. <laughs> That's on. The, it's been added to the list of things he doesn't like to see of any. Well, we'll follow that beef and any other ones that start up um, as the podcast goes on. What else do we learn about players that might be contenders in the second half of the season? Do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, there's. Uh, I mean, Judd was very disappointing. Um, as he was last year in the Masters, and he, and he won it. Um, he said himself at the end he couldn't believe he won it. He thought it was, it was like a cat with nine lives. Um, this year, again, pretty disappointing. Neil Robertson still not playing well. Mark Selby was very poor against Mark Allen, even after doing four one ahead. Um, I kind of think, who's who's going to put it up to Ronnie at the World? Who's going to stand up to him? And, and I'm, I'm, struggling to, I'm struggling to find names. Yeah. I, I, as I said, I was at the Allen-Selby game, and it was... Even at three, four, one up, he didn't really look himself a lot of the time. I thought Selby. Mm. He was. He was. He, they were both made quite a few mistakes in the. Uh, it wasn't a huge surprise at the way that Alan came back somehow. Interesting being there live as well. You can sometimes just there's like tiny little indicators. Like Selby's body language was just looked a bit off. He looked a bit. Okay. He just he didn't quite look. There were only tiny things, but at three, one down, four, one down, Alan still looked. He might have been thinking about his 147 and the money he might make at the Christmas first. But yeah, he looked, somehow Alan just seemed like he dug deep and found an extra mental gear. We'll chat to him about mm-hmm. it because he's on. Yeah, well, we'll see. Basically, the conclusion at the end of the tournament is the same conclusion as usual, which is it's almost impossible to beat Ronnie. It, it, it seems to be at the minute when, when, he, when, when he wants to turn up and win, he generally does. That's the thing. Um, you know, what, how many tournaments he's going to play between now and the Crucible, who knows? Um, well, yeah. If he, if he doesn't play in everything, he's going to be fresh as well. Um, so, yeah, it's going to take a hell of a performance from someone to beat him. He's now won the Masters, a step towards the season slam. And if he did do that, he'd have eight of each of the Triple Crown events. Yeah. It feels quite neat. Do you think he's, well, he's obviously got it in him. Do you think he will do it, I suppose, is the question. I've, I've got a feeling he will. It, it almost feels like destiny, doesn't it? The way the way it's going, the way the UK getting the eighth, the Masters in the eighth. And, and, and it just feels like... Um, it's just in line to happen. So yeah, as I say, I, I, at this point in time, I don't see who's going to stop him at the yeah. world, unless you know, Ronnie. The, the biggest danger to Ronnie at the world could be himself, himself. rather than another yeah. player. So yeah, I, I, I tend to I tend to think that yeah, he's going to do it. He said before that he, he feels like he runs out of gas because the tournament is so long and he you know you're mm. in Sheffield for so long. So you feel like if someone could beat him early doors, maybe that's the only chance. That's that's probably when he's going to be the most vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, for first round maybe. I'm Stephen Hendry. I'm Matt Watson. And this is Snooker Club, the official World Snooker Tour podcast. Now it's time to check through the Snooker Club inbox. Uh, thanks, as always, for your messages. Snookerclub at wst.tv is the address to send your messages to. We've got loads of emails to get through, so keep listening to future episodes of Snooker Club if you don't hear yours today. 
your correspondence there's a lot of it the most you've ever had in fact um some of it's just fan mail brian mcgovern saying uh, how much he enjoyed the live podcast great to hear zhang on the podcast too he was really lovely to talk to mm. um a few good laughs on the journey home from work thanks very much for listening brian and um similarly for well will will was actually at the live show uh hi mark and Stephen. very quick email to say well done on the podcast had the pleasure to be at alexandra palace and it was a brilliant evening of entertainment that's what we like to hear um <laughs> Keep up the good work. And I also like to hear this. Hoping World Snooker will keep this podcast going. There you go. That's out of our hands. Keep us keep us employed. I will certainly do more live ones, I would have thought, because it was real fun. And the people that showed up, including your mega fan, were... Uh... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think one at, one at the Crucible would be great. For me too. We'll just need a bouncer on the door to stop her from coming in again. Um, <laughs> another person says uh, that was at the podcast, uh, this is Jack. Hi lads, great podcast. Such an odd matchup, but surprisingly, it works pretty well. So there you go. Oh, really well, he says, really well. It is a bit of an odd matchup, yeah. This person has got, a, well, continuing our occasional series of underwhelming uh, meetups with snooker players. The only encounter I've had with a snooker player was in roughly 2010. Me and my brother saw Ronnie in Ikea in Tottenham. Um, not far from where I live, actually. I, I should be hanging around there more often. We were so starstruck, but didn't want to bother him. So my bro- this is actually worse than bothering him. My brother just went and stood next to him in the queue very awkwardly and didn't say anything. Oh, God. <laughs> I bet you Ronnie was conscious of it, and he's thinking, is that bloke looking at me or not? It's, I would say it, my tip would be it's better to go and say hi to someone politely rather than uh, just go and position yourself near them and watch everything. Well, uh, yeah, Absolutely. Are you uh, are you an IKEA man, Stephen? Or I, 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 I am actually. I've got I've got a few items in, in my apartment that um I'm I'm useless at building the things. My yeah. my girlfriend sort of takes over more than me, but um just Same. reading instructions um is 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 enough for me. It's, it may as well be in a different language. But um yeah yeah I I, I quite like it. Oh yeah, the, when it's a diagram with sort of seven or eight, and sometimes there's not any proper instructions. Sometimes you're just doing it from pictures. It's it's takes me back to Lego days. <laughs> I can imagine Ronnie putting a, putting a cabinet together like fairly easily. Uh, Jaffeth, I think it is, from Leicester, um, says, Mark Watson's been on Taskmaster. If there was a series of Taskmaster with five snooker players, who should go on it? So you're looking for a mixture of people that are mm. quite sort of cunning at tasks and maybe at least one person that's absolutely useless at doing anything. Um, yeah, I mean, well, I'd, I'd probably be the useless one. I think, um, oh, I don't think, someone like... Yeah, someone like I mean, Steve might be quite good. Steve Davis okay. might be quite quite good at things. I think he likes you stuff can't like that. About Steve, Steve would take quite a weird angle with all the tasks. I would yeah, have thought. yeah. And then Murphy, you can imagine because he's quite sort of straight down the line. You, you a bit yeah. like serious. That that'd be quite fun. What you maybe want is we've mentioned um, Chaya. Someone like him, like a real oddball of a player, would would be. Um, would be fun. <laughs> you always want you want someone on Taskmaster that, that goes about things in a really like totally unpredictable way. Yeah. So, so someone like him, or looking back over some of the eccentrics that we've had, the players that you often only see at the first round of the Crucible, you want one of those in as a wild card, I think. Robert Milkins. Milkins is an interesting one. Yeah, the milkman. Can you imagine him? <laughs> Milkins is good because he's got such a serious. He, he always looks so troubled as well. Yeah, he, I think, I think so. Oh, if you've not seen Taskmaster, well, it's on Channel 4 these days, basically five comedians, well, not all comedians, but comedians, um, famous people compete to do stupid tasks, which can be anything. Get this into the into the box as fast as you can. Build a machine that flies. It, it, it could be, it can be basically anything. And um, 
people end up panicking and taking sort of mad approaches and as long as it's not, not nothing to do with wasps and nothing to do any with water <laughs> going underwater it would be pretty cruel episode if they if they catch this wasp you have 20 minutes so it sounds like you won't be doing i'm a celebrity then uh well if you see me on it there's a lot of zeros on the contract <laughs> yeah to be fair i think they quite often are but yeah oh, fair enough i'm the same with snakes so i don't yeah. think either of us is likely to go to the jungle anytime <laughs> Well, Alex is a friend of mine. I, they've done very Alex Horn. This is who's the sort of the brains behind Taskmaster. They've done quite a few celebrity episodes. I, I'll pitch an all snooker episode to him. It might be a bit of a difficult sell, but uh, yeah, 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 that, that, yeah. You could do it during the World Championships. It'd be amazing. It's just that maybe yeah. it's a one-off. Alan McManus, I think, would be good. And also going back to that, because he's 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 quite he's very clever and 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 you know like crafty Scotsman. And and I remember in, going back to sort of IKEA stuff. I remember in lockdown, we did a broadcast for ITV remotely for a tournament, and um, yeah. and he sat by and he's literally said that he built his own. He built a bar in his house that doesn't surprise me at all if there's one player or former player that you think anything involved in making something angles would be angles would be all over that angles would be brilliant yeah yeah Mark williams on the other hand williams might be quite good again as a sort of rogue because he he, he would just not obey any of the rules and just mess about i reckon yeah 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 i, th- I think and, and williams what would he what would he be i mean what, yeah what would he be any good like- at i don't know certainly like- not writing text have you read any, anyone's read any of his uh, twitter posts or anything oh, i mean yeah, yeah. His Twitter is bewildering. It is. <laughs> He's got his own language. Yeah. In fact, there is a there's an account called Mark Williams Tweets Explained where someone just translates all this. Is tweets. there really? There is. Yeah. Oh. Every time Williams tweets, about ten minutes later, some some snooker fan out there tweets just just in normal English <laughs> to explain what it was. I also feel like Williams might just get bored in the middle of a task and just wander off though. It, yeah. Um, J- Jimmy would. Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy would get bored after a minute and, and probably phone someone else to come and do it for him. <laughs> yeah, and Ronnie would probably like leave halfway through the series and just, just yeah. disappear. It would be a, yeah. be a risky yeah, booking. Obviously, he's, he has got a, he's got a way with these sound bites, Ronnie, but quite apart from his complaints about the venue, there was, I think it was before the Hawkins match, someone said, are you are looking forward to this one? And he said his mate was cooking a bit of sea bass and he's looking forward yeah. to getting into that. Yeah, so that really is like, even yeah. for Ronnie, that is... Uh, <laughs> I know. He's there just clearing the table, but half of his mind is already, he's got his knife and fork and he's tucking into that sea bass. Yeah. Don't blame him, it's a tasty fish. Yeah, Neil Robertson might be a good chance because he, he, he sits and paints figures for like hours and hours and hours for, the, for, the, for, the, for figurines for that. Is it World Warcraft or something? Yeah, that sort of stuff. Actually, now you said that, I can really see yeah. that. Yeah. And he's a sorry yeah. snooker anyway. Selby, I think, would be maybe too too thorough. He'd be like you often only get twenty minutes for the task. I think he'd spend he'd spend too long just looking around the room. <laughs> we didn't definitely have a shot clock. Taskmaster yeah, yeah. shot clock with a shot clock. Maybe that's what we need at the Crucible. Alex Horn standing there with the with the clock counting down. <laughs> well, again, keep your Taskmaster suggestions coming in. Uh, tars- like snooker Taskmaster suggestions. Um, this is an interesting question. Uh, from Chris in Norwich. First of all, he says this is the podcast snooker fans have been waiting for. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I don't know how many people were thinking when will there be a podcast with Henry and Watson. But if you were waiting for it, finally the wait is over. I'm 30 years old. I've recently started watching and uh, playing. Safe to sound, pretty dreadful. Stephen's Q-tips video uh, has been a blessing. Excellent content. Uh, but this is an interesting question. Is it wise to mix pool and snooker? He says, me and my playing partner, Dom Smith, shout out, rotate each week. That can't mm. be that can't be good for your um, technique, is it? Because pool is quite different. If you were serious about being good at one of them, yeah, you'd, you'd have to leave the other one out because the two completely different techniques, two different techniques needed really to play snooker and pool. Pool's like drafts, 
and and snookers like chess. I mean, that's 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 basically the the the, the difference. Um, yeah. But yeah, if yeah. you if you were seriously thinking, right, I want to get really good at snooker, then you got to for you you leave you leave pool out and vice versa. Yeah, because there's a fair bit of just smashing the balls around with pool. Well, it's a break off, isn't it? Yeah, the, it's yeah. the one shot that's important. Um, he also asks, when is the best time to consider coaching? I suppose he means like how how far in you should you oh, be. Oh right, okay. So you must be quite I, serious about getting better at that stage. I think it's. I think if you're if you if you're serious about getting better, have a coach right at the beginning, like now. Right. Get yep. someone to sort of put you on the right track, give yeah. you some routines and stuff, and then when you get to the stage where maybe you're making fifty, sixty, seventy breaks, and you want to go to the next level, then maybe see yeah. someone again. But I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go having a coach like constantly. But um. But yeah. yeah. So yeah, a coach to. So I could sort out my bridge now, for example, and then... You'd probably do an intensive sort of, you know, <laughs> month of... <laughs> month of, like, Q-schools type sort of boot camp, yeah. Fair enough. Well, good luck with it, Chris. Uh, are you available for coaching, Stephen, or uh, should Chris look elsewhere? They can't afford me, Mark. <laughs> no, fair enough. <laughs> probably I actually wouldn't make a very good coach. I mean, I, I, the technical stuff... When I watch players, there's players that that recognise things more than me. Like Steve Davis is quite good at recognising stuff. Yeah. I can be, sort of basic stuff. I I can recognise, but in terms of like if I stood besides behind someone and said, "Oh, you do it," that because I find that quite difficult. In fact, you have stood behind me and said your bridge is rubbish. So the, the blatantly <laughs> obvious, I'm quite I can spot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, the nuances of the game, you're not. Yeah, again, you can't help thinking Murphy would would have a career in coaching if he wanted. I, I, th- I think so. I think so. I, I, yeah, he's got his commentary all uh, all sewn up though. He's doing more of that than playing, as we've said. Oh well, we'll see. Um, thanks to all of you for writing in. Uh, all of you, of course, now honorary snooker club members. The address, as always, is snookerclub at wst. TV. Please do keep our um, inbox teaming. You can uh, suggest Taskmaster casts, like Snooker Taskmaster. Uh, you can let Stephen know like what is the case for not killing wasps or anything else that you want to get in touch with, really. Hey, I'm Neil Robertson. When I'm building and painting Warhammer models, I'm tuning into WST's official podcast, Snooker Club. Now it's time to welcome this week's special guest. Uh, he's won two thirds of the Triple Crown with wins in the Masters in 2018. UK Championship in 2022. Uh, the latter helped him secure last season's Player of the Year. He is, of course, the world number three. It's the Pistol Mark Allen. How are you doing, Mark? Thanks yeah, for having me. I'm good. Uh, I was there on Friday night for your 147, so I want to get want to get straight into that. What what was that like? Well, for a start, it looked at the end like it was those last couple were horrible. Yeah, you summed it up. It was good up until 88. I was in perfect position up until 88, and then I was just struggling. I recovery shots, and then got back in perfect position, really, on the, the brown. And then somehow managed to mess it up again. Terrible on the pink, and made for more drama and uh, nerve-wracking. And, yeah, I was just relieved to see the black in at the end. It was drama, all right. The, the noise that went through the room after that, before the pink and then before the black, it, it was I could hardly watch it. I've never seen a 147 live before. How early were you thinking about the 147? Honestly, at the time, not very early. It's like, yeah. Looking back, because of the way the balls were sitting, that probably could have been. But because of how poorly I'd started in the match, I was just trying to think of getting points on the board. And it was only when I got to 64 and I put a red in the middle, I thought, no, this is a proper chance now. I would normally, in that position, I'd be thinking I was 16, 17. I'd be thinking about it. But in that scenario, just given how bad I'd played in the first two frames, it was uh, just get a frame on the board quick. What's going to be your approach when you get to the World Championship? If you get a chance, are you going to take the risk for the, for the 147k? 
Yeah, I think because obviously I'm there to win the World Championships. That's yeah. more important than anything. But it'd be great to have some sort of go at it throughout yeah. the, the, the 17 days. But yeah, I'll definitely not be risking throwing any frames away because of it. <laughs> yeah, we were saying it, it, it could you could easily go out of the tournament just chasing one four seven every frame. Wouldn't be ideal. We give give someone to talk about it anyway. <laughs> Before the final black, did you was, did you like take a moment to think about it, or you just just head down straight into it? Because it, like I can imagine a lot of stuff would go through your head in that in that moment. Honestly, I was pretty clear. I was uh, you yeah. know just get down and pot the black. No, just yeah. I, I knew that the end off was quite close to the middle pocket if I played it naturally, so I had to like, dig down a little bit, which made it a bit more t- tricky, but. Yeah, I was just waiting on the crowd noise to subside, and yeah, I was probably the last one to know. Because I was, I was saying to Mark yesterday, um, whenever you're kind of on a one four seven, whenever being on, you, you, there's a slight little tiny voice in the back of your head saying, "Oh, don't miss the final black, don't miss the final black." So you didn't have that. And not thank me for saying it, but there's like a, a millisecond of Ken Doherty come into my yeah. mind. <laughs> oh, just please, just just focus on the shot and play it. Yeah, so it's mad the things that you can think about. Like yeah, yeah, Ken Doherty's that moment has haunted. Everyone making a one four seven. I know because he actually wasn't a bad player at the, at the end of the day, but everyone's going to just remember that Miss Black at one hundred and forty. It's quite brilliant to watch. Cool. Like, so yeah. what's your 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 thoughts on last week? Because obviously you, you you'd be disappointed to lose in the semi final. What? How do you think you played? And honestly, I was awful. Bottom line, uh, obviously I made the one four seven, which is a bit of a standout, but mm. I, I was really poor, uh, really struggling just in my action. If I'm honest. I felt good. I've been practicing a lot, and that, that's what makes it even more frustrating whenever you, you're not finding that form that you're expecting. It is frustrating. I can't put my finger on what exactly is going wrong right now, but mm. yeah, I'm just not feeling too happy about my game. But I'm sort of happy in the sense that even though I was probably playing them a C, C game or D game, I still gave myself a chance come like semi final day. You no, know, I still had a chance, and it was well in that match against Elliot 4 3. It just, yeah, it just didn't happen. To come back and beat Selby from what was it four one down, like without being on your top of your game, it must at least show you've got you can dig very deep for these results. Yeah, I've, I've always sort of had that in my locker, and it's not often that I, I, like someone drags Selby down. I mean, it's normally the, the <laughs> other way around, drags them into a bit of a battle. But that's just what I felt like I needed to do on that night. I wasn't playing very well, and but I managed to put some good balls at good times, and then I think I deserved to win in the end. You do you do quite a lot of stuff off the table. You got a foundation. Um, you do obviously you're doing punditry now. You do a bit of coaching. What? How do you balance everything to, to obviously give your your obviously your career a hundred percent attention? Yeah, well, to be honest, the first and foremost is my career. You know that, right. that, that that's always come first. So it's never going to get in the way of any practice. You know that I've got lined up or preparation for events. So really, the punditry for me is just something that passes some time in between matches. You get a lot of time off in between games. Yes. So it's just twirling your thumbs in a hotel room or go and do a bit of work and actually enjoy that side of it. It's, a bit, it's something I never really seen myself doing it, if I'm honest. But I, when they first asked me there about two years ago, I actually really enjoyed it. I thought, oh, I'd like a bit more of this. So mm-hmm. never going to take away anything from my actual snooker preparation. And then you mentioned the foundation there too. It's a charity that myself and three friends have got off the ground. It took about 18 months just to get all the paperwork officially through. But now we're like an official registered charity. And hope we can just raise lots of money and help you know, local. I think we're, what we're going to try and do is like partner up with local charities, just raise money throughout the year and events that I do, and then just split the money between the other charities. Because I think that will take a lot of the workload away from me. I might be wrong, but you must be the first snooker player that's ever done anything like this, are you? I think I am. The only reason I know that is one of the journalists that I've done a piece for last week mentioned that I was the first, but I'm surprised because you know, we've 
there's a number of us have been in a good position to do something like that over the years, but something that's always been close to my heart and something I've always been involved in the last sort of 10 or 15 years. So trying to do what I can, but I've always tried to do it nearly in private and not, yeah. not wanting any sort of credit for it. But mm-hmm. I just thought it was a little bit of like wasted energy. And I don't mean that to sound bad, but I just felt like getting myself out there and being a bit more in the public eye might help take it to the next level and actually raise a lot more money because in the grand scheme of things, no, I haven't really raised that much given all the effort I've put in the last 10 or 15 years. So hopefully this will make things a bit easier. Will you be doing any sort of snooker-related stuff to raise money? Well, I, th- I think what we're actually talking like because Rob Walker uh, mentioned about maybe coming over and doing an event with me to try and launch the sort of start of it and hopefully do an exhibition-style Q&A, three, four frames exhibition, and then do a Q&A with Rob and trying to bring in a few other like sporting people from Northern Ireland. I know quite a good well, comedian that might be good to, to sort of take care of. You know, he's, he's underneath you at the minute on my screen. You know, he might be. <laughs> do you know anyone good? I, I don't really know anyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, easy. Coming on to the, obviously you're the reigning champion at the Grand Prix. Is that, does that put an extra pressure on? Not not really. I think I, in, the, in the past I've always done reasonably well when I've went into a tournament as defending champion. I think Masters aside when I lost first round, nearly every other time I've won a tournament. The next year I've gone close again. So hopefully I can take those positive thoughts and into this week. Look, I'm just going to have to play well. That's the bottom line. And being thrown in there in the deep end of another match may be the best thing for me. Uh, we've got quite a lot of um, fan questions. Uh, so we'll we'll make a start on those. Um, Go easy on me. I will do. Well, most of them are quite... I mean, there's there's quite a few of them. We'll see what we can do. Uh, Scott says, if you were stranded on a desert island, what other snooker player would you take with you? <laughs> Good question. I, I don't know if you've got a snooker table in this scenario or you just have to hang out with them. I think Maguire. Maguire would be my best mate on tour. Oh, yeah, you guys are, are, are thick as thieves, aren't you, when you're away? And if, if there's alcohol on the island, then we've got... <laughs> Who'd be the worst person to get stuck with? That's a more controversial oh. one. Oh. That is a tough one. <laughs> throw someone under the bus here maybe Jordan Brown because <laughs> he'd never buy, he'd never buy a drink on the island or anything like he's yeah I think his pockets are closed right and you, you uh, said he's a bit of a geek with snooker so you've been talking snooker all the time uh, my head would be turned <laughs> I, I could go to force cannibalism that way <laughs> yeah we, we don't want you to end up eating the other snooker player to be fair that's yeah well, it's one less to worry about on tour, isn't it? Well, I suppose so, yeah. <laughs> this is a tough one, especially given what's happened recently. Idris says, can you sum up Ronnie in one sentence? Unpredictable. That's just the word I would use. It's just genius, but flawed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is from Jonathan. How do you stay calm when you're trailing in a match? Big shift for you in the last two seasons has been your mental health. Yeah, it's strange because I felt like even before I started working with a psychologist, I felt like I was always really strong mentally. But I mm. think he's just took that to another level and that he got me clearly thinking that no matter what the score is, all you can control is that next shot or that next frame. So whatever the score is, can you win the next frame? And the answer is always yes. So that's just the way I've tried to approach it lately. Can I ask, you know, you always have the mug of hot water. Is that something to do with that? Honestly, see, since I've lost the weight I've lost, I'm just always really cold on my hands and my feet. I don't have as much insulation as I used to have. So <laughs> just, I thought it was maybe something to sort of focus the mind. Or you know, some people think that they do sort of do some breathing exercises and stuff whenever I'm out there playing, but now the water's just completely unrelated. I'm just okay. always cold because I have little hand warmers and stuff that I take out with me as well. And I'm still always cold. And the venues are warm. Yeah. I know yeah. they're warm, but I'm just still always really cold in my hands. <laughs> Is a psychologist something you'd recommend to other snooker players? Paul, Paul Gaffney's you know, really, really helped me. He's helped focus my mind on what to be thinking out there, what's important. So I, I yeah. think a lot of people could learn from it. Now, it's not for everyone. I know there's some people that probably wouldn't want to go down that approach because you have to sort of nearly open yourself up to someone. 
and a lot of people don't want to do that. They yeah, sort of see yeah. it as a bit of a weakness, but no, I've definitely turned it into a strength. Uh, actually, the next question is, was pretty similar from Abdul. How do you keep your focus in a in an event with a big crowd like the two Northern Irish Open finals? But again, this is similar. Is it just focusing on each ball rather than thinking about Absolutely. It? If you can keep it as simple as that, then it doesn't matter what event you're playing in, who you're playing against, or what crowd you're playing in front of. It's just always the same shot. So you just have to keep it as simple. But yeah, my earlier days playing in front of big crowds was it was completely yeah. alien to me and it felt weird. I remember the cameraman like getting in front of the pocket and I'm thinking, you're in my way, but he's just doing his job. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, that took a bit of time to get used to, but no. During your 147, I was I, a couple of times watched the cameraman just like get yeah. out of the way. And uh, you do wonder how conscious the players are of it. The cameramen that are there all the time, they, you would hardly know they're there. They're so good at their job. They're so fast at getting in position. They're, they're, they're very, very rarely out of position. Yeah. It's amazing to watch. It's like he's thinking about your next shot almost as much as you are, basically. Yeah, and that's that's what you, you know. They're the ones that have been there so long because they know where you're going to go and what shot you're about to take and what yeah. pocket to go to. And obviously, they're getting told in their ear by the director to go to where. You just don't notice them. Yeah, I was going to say that. The, direct, the director's obviously been doing it for a long time as well, and they, they know where to put the cameraman at what stage. It's, it's, it's actually it's very clever when, obviously, you're doing the punters now. You can hear them. It's actually very yeah. clever um, how, how, how it all works. I was going to go back to that Northern Ireland, actually. How What was it like winning your national, like, twice? I mean, that's like because there's huge expectation on you out there, isn't it? So to win that Northern yeah. Ireland trophy twice, was I think it's a fantastic effort. And to be honest, I don't know where it came from because, like, every year I went there, I was a bag of nerves and I just didn't enjoy the experience of it. And I was doing it for the wrong reasons. I was wanting to do it for them rather than, yeah. like, every other tournament, I'd do it for me. Uh, so I, I made a conscious decision about four years ago to just, I'm going to go to a hotel, I'm going to treat it like a tournament, because I only lived 20 minutes from there. That helped. Even Now, the first year I'd done that, I didn't win it, but I, I played well that week and just happened to lose to someone who played better. But I thought I'd turned a corner then. And then the following year, obviously, the first round, I made a 147. That was an unbelievable buzz. And then the, a week later, I'm in the final against John, eight all. And that's something I'll I'll never, ever forget, the atmosphere that night. I remember walking out with John, eight all, to the toilet. And I put my arm around him and said, like, this is why we play, because the, mm-hmm. the atmosphere was just ridiculous. And I had just enjoyed every minute of it. And it's a different experience for me now, going back to Belfast, yeah. and I'm champion, because I feel like I can relax a little bit. I have nothing to prove, but I always felt like, in the back of my mind, that I did. Which actually, this is a question that follows up from that, uh, from someone called Riff. He says, at what time at what time during your career did you realise that you are good enough and you should be competing? Was it winning Was it winning Northern Ireland or was it just a gradual kind of... No, I think it was much earlier than that. Now, I, was, I turned pro at 19 and I had a really good amateur record. I'd won nearly everything the amateur game had to offer. And yeah. I knew that coming in, there was going to be much better players than me, obviously the older guys, but the ones that were going to be my competition in the future, I was like bashing them up on the junior scene so it shouldn't really change much in sort of 10-15 years time if they're the same competition it shouldn't really change so I was a little disappointed that I didn't hit the ground running quicker even though I got in the top 16 after three years which I don't think anyone else has done maybe one or two maybe but I was disappointed with that because I wasn't winning tournaments but the game's hard and these guys they're hardened professionals and there's a different way to win which took me a long time to realise to be honest and I'm still at the point now where I've, I've won 18 tournaments in 18 years and I'm still disappointed no I want to I want to double that I want to I want to get a lot more and the people that are winning tournaments I'm not jealous in any way but I'm envious because I want to be doing that as well no these people are winning three four times a year I believe I'm good enough to do that obviously Ronnie's won the UK he's won won the Masters in terms of like who's going to put it up to I mean explain how difficult it is to sort of keep up with Ronnie and and actually because I thought in the final against Carter Ronnie just basically wore him down and wore him down 
And there was a point when Ali could have easily been 8-7 in front, that he pointed around, didn't get on the pink into the middle, and it could have changed the result. But what is it? What's the pressure that he puts on you? The intensity, and what? And do you think you need to get to another level in your game to be able to compete regularly? Obviously, you can beat him in matches, no doubt about that. But regularly, I think you need to forget that you're playing Ronnie. I know he's a very, very good snooker player. That's like a, a mm. bit of an understatement, but he's just another player. So mm. you can't control what he does. You have to just play well. I, I find the matches against Ronnie and the the likes of him are easier because the, the game becomes much more simpler. You, you're not overthinking. You're just thinking of pot the ball, get on the next ball. and yeah. that, You have to keep it as simple as possible. Now, obviously, Ronnie, he makes less mistakes yeah. than some others, but he still makes mistakes. It's up to mm-hmm. you whether you're mentally ready to take them. I think that the, I didn't see the final. I don't really watch a lot of snicker when I got beat, but from what I've read, as the match went on, Ali sort of went into his shell a little bit. That, that's the complete opposite approach of what you need to be doing against Ronnie. You need to be more aggressive because you're going to get less chances. You need to show him you're there for, for the long run and you're going to take these chances as the match goes on. Like He talked about it in the interview after that scene that you know, some people have it, some people don't. There's certain players that I think Ronnie knows that they can beat him. Yeah. And I believe I'm one of them. I think Ronnie knows that. Uh Question on a different note here. Dave says, I love your watch. Where is it from? <laughs> oh, know where you live. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, what is it? I don't even know. It's a Rolex Datejust. I only got it there about two, about two months ago. So I treated myself after I won the Champ of Champs. Is it, is it on your, your, your bridge hand? Yeah, it's on my bridge hand, yeah. Right. It always surprised me why snooker players never had a watch sponsor. Several times in, on this podcast, Stephen, there's thought of areas that you could be sponsored, like where you could have a logo. Yeah, we're always open to ideas, Mark, always. <laughs> <laughs> this is an interesting one. Billy asks, um, was there a player you thought was destined for the top but never quite got there? No, I'm not a believer in that. I just believe that if you're going to be good enough, you'll be good enough. And get that. Yeah. There's just different excuses for people along the way. That's the way I've always been. If, if you haven't made it, yeah, it's normally because of your own sort of mistakes. And it's normally down to, I think, application and dedication and stuff. Them Down the years, the amount of talented players that people used to tell me about, they were making, oh, this guy's making 10 centuries a day and everything like that. I said, oh, that like, sounds unbelievable player. And then you hear, like, three or four years later that they've, they've gone into, like, you know, they've, they've just gone out with their mates, they're drinking, they've just not... They're... I think a lot of the time it comes down to dedication, doesn't it? I think so. And, and like, there's a difference between dedication and actually applying yourself because mm-hmm. you could do 10 hours a day but if you're not doing it the right way it's just yeah. wasting time so you need to be structured in it and I see a lot of young ones now and they think that just because they do a lot of hours that they're doing the right things and it's not always about that I just genuinely believe that if you're going to be good enough there's never going to be an excuse big enough or strong enough to stop you from making it what's your opinion of Liam Graham young Liam uh, <laughs> I guess he got on really well with Liam He's come, he comes over to our club a little bit and plays he's a complete head case complete head case uh, but he's, he's a good kid and he practices hard and he's done well for himself already you know he'd he come through I think it was the EBSA under 21s to get on tour and, and not a lot of people would have expected it I would say Liam would probably admit that he wouldn't have been one of the favourites for that event and he hasn't done much on tour yet but it's people like that you want to see do well because he does put the hours in but like I say it's there's sometimes a bit more to it you need to be applying yourself right as well but he's a good kid and I'd like to see him do well so Mark is now going to become the latest, uh, I don't like to say, victim of our quiz. Uh, basically, Mark, it's um, 147 seconds. And uh, you start with a red, which is a question about you. And then you can go green, blue or black. So green is, is May United, which is your specialist subject. Uh, blue is snooker, which you've said off air you, you, don't, you don't want to take on. 
uh, and black is general knowledge so it's up to you how sort of how many risks you take basically oh. okay yeah. no problem. well the high score is up there in the 20s but you're looking to well, a- avoid the low score which uh what is the lowest so i know what the what's the benchmark here the comedian Joe Wilkinson got five, largely because he couldn't remember anything about his own life, especially, or career. Okay. Um, he was struggling amongst the Reds. Are you ready, Mark? Yeah, I'm ready. As I'll ever be. In what year did you win the World Amateur Championship? 2004. It's correct. One on the board. So, uh, green for Man United. Green, yep. Yeah. Uh, in what year did United first win the European Cup? Oh, wow. Like 58. Ah, 68. Um, back to red. Name the two opponents you beat to win the Northern Ireland Open. I reckon you'll get those. Uh, John Higgins and Zhu Yilong. Correct. Uh, again, green, blue or black? Blue. Blue. Um, you became the fourth player to hit a 147 at the Masters. Can you name two of the other three that have done it? Ding, Margot Fu. Excellent. That's, there you go. That's, that's a blue on the board. You're ready on a seventh Today. break. <laughs> Back to a red. This is interesting. What opponent have you faced the most in ranking and minor ranking finals? In finals? Judge Trump. It is Trump. Uh, on to another colour. Black, let's go heavy scoring. Let's yeah, big. Uh, what mountain is the highest peak in Wales? <laughs> what? Sardonia? <laughs> I'll take it, yes, Mount Snowden. That's a long black into the into the uh, top <laughs> corner. Another red. True or false, your average shot time this season is under 25 seconds. Don't know whether you know this yourself. Oh, true. False, it's 25.2 seconds. Uh, pretty <laughs> sneaky, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you'd know this either. As of, well, as of the 13th of January this year, uh, how many century breaks have you made in your career? 586. Whoa, 592. I almost feel like that that should drop in, really. That's within 10. I mean, that's a hell of a okay. century. Black. One more colour. Black. Let's go black. Black again. He's going all in. Uh, what is the longest running Broadway show? Wow. Famous musical. Mamma Mia. He's unlucky. It's the Phantom of the Opera. And that is time up, but that's I think is going to be somewhere in the teens. It's a decent score. I'll take that as long as a big Stephen, I'm having yeah. that. That mountain was big in the end. Sixteen, it is. That's like one of my normal breaks, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> Back in your chair, but that is comfortably up the leaderboard. Well done, Mark, and thanks Happy for days. thanks for coming on. It's been really fun. Thanks for yeah. having me, guys. Very much, Mark. No worries, mate. Cheers. Cheers. Good luck this week. Thank you. So that is all from us this week on Snooker Club. Um, if you've not already, please make sure to subscribe to Snooker Club wherever you get your podcasts and you can head to WST's YouTube to watch the show back. Thanks for listening, guys. Again, contact the show via snookerclub at wst.tv. Next week, the 147 returns, your fortnightly roundup from WST. Until then, see you soon. Cheers, guys. <laughs>